Welcome to Season 2 of Psychodrama Podcast, where two psychologists talk about clinical practice, science, and societal controversies. I'm Katie Gordon, and my co-host is Leo Bobadilla. I'm here to give an introduction to our topic and guest before we get into the interview. The idea for the episode today came from a discussion Leo and I had about a New York Times article. I'll share part of it with you right now and link to it in our show notes. The headline read, Keith Rainier, leader of Nexium sex cult, is sentenced to 120 years in prison. In the courtroom, more than a dozen victims gave wrenching testimony about how he manipulated and sexually abused them. It goes on. Keith Rainier promised a path to happiness, seducing wealthy people who felt they lacked a higher purpose in life. His company, Nexium, offered self-improvement workshops that became popular in Hollywood and business circles. But beneath the surface, Mr. Rainier was a puppet master controlling a cult-like criminal enterprise. After reading this article, we wanted to learn more about the dynamics of cults, the members, and the leaders and explore some of the mental health implications from it as well. We invited expert Dr. Yanya Lalich on to join us, and we were so thrilled when she agreed to an interview. Here is a brief background on Dr. Lalich from her website, cultresearch.org, which you should definitely check out to learn more about her and the amazing work that she does. Dr. Lalich is a world-renowned expert in cultic studies. She is a professor emerita of sociology at California State University, Chico. She is also the author and co-author of critically acclaimed books on cults. She is an avid contributor to the field of cultic studies through her research, presentations, and articles. Now we'll go to the interview. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, Leo. How are you doing today? Great. How are you, Katie? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to have a special expert guest today to talk to us about cults. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you. And uh, part of the reason that we have you is because recently, the, um, the uh, and correct me in the spelling, in this, because I think it's called the Nexium cult, yes. Yes. correct? Yeah, has been on the news and um, you, you appeared in multiple outlets as an expert leader in this area. So we're very excited to have you and we're honored to have you in the show. So we're wondering if maybe we could start um, by talking a little bit about your experience. How how did you become involved in, in this area of research and your personal experience with it? Well, uh, I myself was in a cult uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, mm-hmm. It was a political cult. We, left mm-hmm. when we were going to make the revolution, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> it was very popular <laughs> at that time. Um, I was 30 years old when I joined. I had already had my BA from University of Wisconsin. I had lived in Europe. You know, I wasn't a naive kid by any mm. means. And the message appealed to me. And I obviously, like most people, I didn't really know what I was getting into. So I was in that group for about 10 and a half years. It was very restrictive. Um, when I got out, I moved to New York. The, the cult was headquartered in San Francisco. Uh, so I was there yeah. most time. But when I got out, I moved to New York because I wanted to be as far away as I could. (laughs) And, um, you know, at first it was really difficult just adjusting to the world again and especially being in the cultural mecca. You know, I hadn't I'd seen maybe three movies in 10 years. And so I was completely out of it. And eventually I got into therapy. At the time, there was a cult clinic in New York where the therapist specialized Hmm. in cult after effects. So I got this fabulous therapist who I really saved saved my life. Um, 
And then uh, after, you know, and, and I, I thought about grad school, but it took me a long time to make that decision. So about mm. 10 years later, I think I was 50 when I started the PhD program. Oh, wow. And I, I mean, I had already actually written a couple of books and was going to conferences and, and you know, I, it started out because I wanted to try to figure out what had happened to me and my brain and uh when I got out, which was the mid 80s, there wasn't really anything about cults other than religious cults. And so mm-hmm. um, I was actually probably the first person who really wrote and talked about political cults and other types of cults. Mm-hmm. So, you know, slowly the, the, it became kind of my career focus. Um, once I got my Ph.D., I got the job you know, in the sociology department at Chico State and um, and basically just, you know, kept researching, wrote a number of books and uh, worked with families and people coming out of cults. While I was teaching, I was able to do less of that because the teaching load was so high. But now that I'm retired, um, I'm doing a support group again for former oh, wow. members yeah, on Zoom every other Saturday. And that's been terrific. And, you know, so I'm and as you know, I'm doing a lot of interviews and, and things. And so, you know, my goal has always been to help survivors in whatever way I can. And that's why I wrote the books, but also to educate the public about about cults, because there are so many misconceptions. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the misconceptions, because that seems to be common in the population that people who enter cults are either maybe not educated. But in your case, you actually were very educated, um, very aware of what's going on. You were perhaps idealistic. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the, those misconceptions a little bit more. What are some of the common misconceptions regarding people who are in cults? And- sure, sure. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, idealistic, because if if there's any common denominator among people who join cults, it's idealism. You know, it's people wanting to mm-hmm you know, make a better world, you know, make a better life, reach some kind of, you know, quote, salvation, some kind of satisfaction for their family or whatever. And so it's not, you know, I think the the common idea is that it's like stupid, weird, crazy people who are weak minded. And and that's not at all the case. I mean, I've, you know, I've worked with wealthy families with children who went to the best schools in this country and it it ha- it really has nothing to do with intelligence or lack of intelligence. You know, first of all, cults don't want crazy people. They don't want mm. people who are going to be who need to be taken care of. You're there to take care of the cult. So cults mm. are, you know, cults are looking for a type personalities. You know, they want people who can run the cult's businesses, who can successfully recruit, who can bring in their contacts uh, to lend legitimacy to the group. Uh, so, th- you know, so that's who they're looking for. That's who gets recruited. Um, and and I think, you know, as, as more and more information has been coming out, especially in this last year or so, I, I think it's really helped people understand uh, who the, quote, typical cult member is. Yeah. And as, as we were, I was preparing for the for this um, episode, we were, I kept thinking about it. So reading more about your material and reading a lot about other stuff that has been published. And was, what is interesting is it seems that it's so gradual, right? It's not like one day you're just minding your own business, going about your life. And then the next the next day you are either getting branded or giving away your positions Absolutely. to the cult. Maybe yeah. can you talk a little bit about that process of uh, slow, gradual movement towards, uh, you know, a person is autonomous towards being very involved in the cult? 
Sure. Uh, I mean, it's definitely a process. And I think, you know, that's also what people often don't understand. I mean, the re recruitment is usually a process where you may go to one thing and then get invited to come back to the next thing. And, and you know, sort of people will be assigned to you to work on you and become your friend. And, um, you know, that's when when people experience what what we call love bombing, you know, where suddenly. Mm -hmm this wonderful group of people and everybody loves you and you have these new best friends and and so one and once you're recruited once you actually join um most cults will have some type of um educational program it's it's the beginning of the indoctrination and so they'll have some type of classes um you know it may be in a religious cult it may be bible classes or mm. you know studying whatever the doctrine is in um, you know, in my group, we studied, you know, political stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And and the purpose of the study, obviously, is to get you to attach yourself to the ideology. So a main part of that early indoctrination to get you to see the leader is somebody very special who has this special message. And only by sticking with this leader, do you achieve, you know, whatever the goal is. Uh, so it, you know, it can take, uh, you know, months to to really get to the point where where you might be, we might call a true believer, where you've totally internalized everything about the group and become completely devoted to the leader. Interesting. And what point did you all of a sudden kind of realize? Okay, I'm. I'm, I'm no longer feeling like I'm the autonomous person that I was, or, or this is taking a turn for the wars or, uh, you know, a dark turn, if you will. Well, in my case, um, I was recruited uh, through a study group. It, it was one of the front groups. And then I didn't know there was a, another organization behind the study group. And then, you know, the point of the study group was to get us to see why we would want to make this next step. For me, I, you know, I was I was pushed up the ranks pretty quickly and and uh, became one mm. of the leaders and mm. trained people and, quote, brainwashed people. Um, so it, but with us from very early on and, th and th this is probably true for a lot of groups, you know, within a matter of a, of a few weeks to a month, um, my time was being completely eaten up and I really didn't oh. have time to see other people who weren't in the group. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's the case with a lot of groups. And also it's in many groups, it's discouraged to see people who aren't in the group because they're mm. going to turn you against it or whatever. Um, and so, you know, eventually you cut off from your family, you cut off from friends, and then you're, you're completely isolated in this kind of what I call this self-sealing world, you know, where everything's kind of closed in on itself. Uh, so, you know, again, that that's going to vary with every group, but goal is to kind of enclose you in this uh, environment where all of the controls and all of the methods of influence are are working toward keeping you bound to the group. And, and you know, and I want to add one thing that's really important, which I think doesn't get enough play, is, is the whole idea of peer pressure. Uh, peer mm -hmm. pressure. Mm -hmm. so important i mean we we respond more to our peers than than anything else and so when you're in this group you know they're they're going to have people who are you know obviously modeling the behavior modeling the thinking many yeah. uh, many groups assign you uh someone who is you know in in heaven's gate it was called a check partner in my group it was called a one help you know and this is a person who you're supposed to go to if you 
have any questions or doubts or hesitations. And of course, they're just reporting everything you say back up to the leadership. Uh, And they're also finding out, you know, what are your weak points and what do they need to put more pressure on? Uh, So, and that kind of peer pressure, that's why these, that's why cults are groups, right? Because Uh the the influence of the people around you is so important. You know, in a lot of cases, people never even see the cult leader or meet the cult leader. Uh I appreciate you bringing up that peer pressure point, because I do think you mentioned the combination of kind of isolating you from people outside the group, and then having people within the group, I think, a lot of us to check our thoughts, if we're skeptical of something, we kind of look to others to see, are you seeing what I see? And if you're kind of only around people are reinforcing that what the cult is saying, I could totally see how it would be hard to recognize um, what exactly. you're into at that point. Right. There's a great study that um, a, a social psychologist named uh, Solomon Ash did a number of years ago, maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the lines, have you lines. seen? Right, yeah, yeah. Please, yeah, talk about that. It's a great, it's a classic study. Yeah, so they're, you know, they, they bring in a subject and, and, and you're sitting in a room with maybe four other people and, and, and the other people are all plants, right? And you're, you're the only one who doesn't know what's going on. And they'll have lines up on a board of different lengths and they'll ask, you know, and then there's a line over to the side and they'll ask which line is that the same size with and the first couple times people pick the right answers you know they'll say number two number two whatever and then about the third time they'll 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 pick a line that's not even close to the same length as the first line and so Mm -hmm. the person who is the subject you know, is kind of sitting there. You can see the look on their face like they're kind of, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. But after everyone else says the wrong line, he goes ahead and also says the wrong line. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, stick out. You know, he doesn't want to break from the crowd. So um, it's really classic for showing how that peer pressure works. Yes, you've mentioned, uh, another thing you mentioned is love bombing. And also as I was preparing for for the episode, one of the things, the thoughts that I kept having was the parallels between cults and abusive relationships. And that term love bombing is used all the time about how abusive partners, you know, kind of just either engage in abusive behavior and then kind of try to get the other person to come back by engaging, you know, showering them with affection and love and trying to like come back. And so I found it fascinating. I wanted to ask, so now that you brought up the, the term, maybe have you thought about or talked about, about kind of parallels between them or, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, abusive, many abusive relationships have a, a lot of the similar things happening. I mean, also this this whole idea of the, you know, what you're bringing up is what, what we call the punishment reward syndrome, right? Mm. So, you know, first, you know, he beats the woman and then he comes back the next day with flowers, right? That, that happens in cults all the time, um, especially where you're kind of always, you're kind of always on pins and needles because you don't know when it's going to be your turn to be the subject of some criticism or some humiliation or being made an example of. And so uh, it, it's so similar to the abusive relationships and and also the the inability to leave. I mean, the mm-hmm. the loss of the sense of self and self-esteem and and the, the sort of lack of any ability to trust yourself uh, to run out the door. Right. Um, so, yeah, there are so many similarities. 
Yeah, and I again, I feel like I'm talking a lot, so sorry, Katie. Uh, but I, I've been also thinking a lot. You know, it's it's. I think what would be for me as I thought about okay, what if I found myself in that situation? And there's been times in my in my family's life in which people have been approached by various factions or or sects, and that was exactly it. It's like, oh, we just want to teach you about you know this techniques or things. And then at some point, my uh, my relative, my mom at the time, she was like, mm, this started to get a little too much. And then she just kind of walked away from it. But I, as I reflect back upon it, I was like, huh. And I think about if I would have been able to kind of walk away from it, mm-hmm. um, especially for things that may appear in which peer pressure and idealism can actually be a force for good, right? So there are many things or an, or group or peer pressure, you know, we can th- I can think of like, uh, the armed forces or Boy Scouts or, you know, other other pro-social um, organizations that do use those those kind of pun- not necessarily punishments, but rewards and also challenges for the person to kind of uh, build cohesion. And and I don't know how good I would be to be able to tell what's the difference between one that is going to be, you know, good for you versus not necessarily so. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, uh, I I think with signing up for anything these days, I think it's really important for people to slow down and take their time. And, um, you know, so there there are certain things I think you can do to uh, pay attention to what might be signals of an unhealthy relationship or an unhealthy organization. Um, You know, cults, for example, or cult recruiters, if you ask questions, they'll tend to turn the question back on you, right? Mm -hmm. They don't really answer your question. You know, they might say, well, you know, you don't know enough yet. Come to the next workshop and then ask us that question. And of course, by that time, you've forgotten what the question is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or if there isn't transparency about, um, you know, where the money goes or how things are structured or how decisions are made. And so I think asking a lot of questions and seeing how they're dealt with should be a sign of uh, of whether something is, you know, for good or not for good. Um, and also if you're, if you're being excessively pressured, you know, if there's, mm-hmm. it's like, you have to do this now, you have to do this now. This guru is only going to be in town this week. You know, no, the guru will come back. You can wait till next time, you know? So, <laughs> you know, I always feel like it. if people did the same kind of research they did, for example, when they're buying a car and they, you know, ask other people who own that car and they go to consumer reports and they drive it around a little bit, but they don't buy it on the first try you know use that same kind of consumer sense when you're you know thinking about signing up for something or joining something that um you know you may have some questions about and trust your gut it's really important to just trust if it doesn't feel right it's probably not right and i think another thing today especially with the um training programs which are so prevalent today in the business world uh, and all these self-help, you know, transformational courses, if they're asking you to sign a waiver, that should be a sign of something not Mm. so good. I mean, if if everything's going to be groovy, why do you need to sign a waiver? Mm You know? Give, give, freeing them from any responsibility should something happen to you. So that, to me, would be another red flag. That's so interesting. That's a thank great, you. Yeah, thank you. I, I think with the recent media coverage about the Nexium cult, as Leo mentioned earlier, that was a big way that people were pulled in. Is that right? Through self-improvement workshops for a higher life purpose? 
Exactly. Exactly. I mean, at first it was like, well, this is really to help you with your career and your acting skills or whatever. But then it really became about, you know, creating this more ethical world, you know, which is simply ludicrous once you found out what the group was really about. But, you know, like most groups, you know, Nexium had this positive message. You know, if the, if the groups really said what they were about, no one would join. Right. So they have mm-hmm. to have kind of cover uh, that that sounds all groovy and positive, um, and and that's how people get hooked in. And then, of course, through friendship networks. I mean, so much of the recruitment into Nexium was through those uh, friendship networks and career networks, and people seeing other people they knew and admired joining. So they thought, well, it must be okay, you know. Sally's part of it, and Susie's part of it, and right. you know, there you go. The peer With- pressure working again. Yes. Mm-hmm. With Keith Rainier um, being, he was sentenced to 120 years in prison um, for a number of things, and including sex trafficking and and other forms of abuse. Is that kind of abuse, sexual abuse, a common part of cults? Well, I, I'd say it's more common than not. Um, it does seem that a, a lot of these leaders, you know, the the kinds of things that are going to happen in the cult are, are going to depend on on the proclivities of the leader. And so in, in many, many cases, mm-hmm. it, it does happen to revolve around sex. And in a lot of cases, it's also about money. In some cases, it's about both. But, you know, sex is um, it, it's a very profound way to control someone. Um, if if you can start to, um, you know, have influence over someone's sex life, you know, that's a very obviously very deep, intimate part of someone. And so it makes the person much more susceptible and vulnerable at that point. Um, and so I think part of it is as a manipulative ploy. But then, you know, a lot of it is just satisfying the needs of the leader. Right. So like a combination of the person just own needs and wants and desires, but also a way to con- uh, use it as a way to control Absolutely. people in the in the in the group. And and the leader of the cult that you were in was a woman. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Do you tend to see on average like differences between men and women who are cult leaders and what what they want or their proclivities? Um, not really. I mean, there, you know, I suppose you see a little less of the of the sexual controls um in the cults led by women but e- but even there 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 are many instances uh where female leaders um also use that to exploit i mean my cult leader did you know n- not in not in only within the inner circle and not in a really overt way for the rest of the group um but but yeah i think um, you know, there are I don't think there are as many female cult leaders as there are male cult leaders. Um, I think, you know, men te- seem to have that more aggressive, domineering mm-hmm. <laughs> type mm-hmm. of behavior and personality. Um, but no, there's not there's not a whole lot of difference, really. Interesting. And from the cult leaders perspective, are they do they tend to think that they are doing what's best or do they understand at some level what they're doing to control people and, and lies or deception aspects of it? 
Oh, I think they absolutely know what they're doing. Um, you know, I'd say there's probably a small minority who do start out with some mm. kind of delusion that they're, you know, speaking for God or the direct line to God or whatever, um, you know, maybe because they had some minor psychotic episode where they, you know, had a vision and, and, and then kind of went with it. But I think most cult leaders are, are, are straight out con artists. They start out that way. They know what they're mm. doing. Uh, most of them are narcissists and um, basically it's all about them and their ego and their needs and desires. And they, a lot of them, of course, also have uh, traits of being a sociopath or a psychopath. Uh, certainly mm -hmm. Keith Raniere did. Um, and so again, that's going to, that's going to affect, you know, the ways in which they behave and the kinds of things that, that, that the cult members are expected to do. Um, but no, in general, they're not nice people. <laughs> Put it mildly. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of reminds me a lot of uh, I saw a documentary on um, Jonestown, um, and uh, that it kind of, as you described, so it begins. It seemed like a very well-meaning religious cult, and very, but it's running a very charismatic person. And you could see how sometimes we can see the idealism of the people who wanted to build a better world and they really kind of just move it forward. But it very quickly just devolves into just as, everything about surrounding the, 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 the leader's desires and their, in his and in this case, his whims um, that were, you know, fueled also by, you know, substance abuse and, and it just devolved into paranoia and then ultimately destruction of everybody in the, in the cult. Right. And, I, you know, I think what happens is that because the cults are, are structured um, in this kind of pyramid hierarchy uh, with the cult mm. leader at the top and the, and the cult leader is never to be challenged or doubted. And so you, you set up a system that has no checks and balances. And I think as uh, the longer the, the, this type of group exists and as the leader it, you know, sees that they can get away with just about anything, if not everything, um, you know, they begin to act out more and more and more um, mm. because they've been able to get away with it. And so they see that they, they do have all power. And right. and then they're, you know, and then if you combine that with, you know, someone like Jones, who was also uh, taking all different kinds of drugs and whatnot, and, and, and then you get into really dangerous territory. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Katie. I was just going to say, you mentioned that you... Uh, You've worked really hard to connect with people who have come out of cults. And I'm wondering what kind of, including I'm seeking your own therapy, what kind of long-term mental health consequences do you tend to see from people once they remove themselves from a cult? Well, I think, um, you know, most immediately, uh, generally people are confused uh, they're full of guilt and shame, you know, guilt maybe over the some of the things they did while they were in the group, you know, shame that they didn't leave earlier. Um, there, there's often, uh, you know, there's there's often really an, an, an inability to think straight. You know, cults take away your critical thinking. And so when people mm. come out, they, 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 they get kind of overwhelmed and, and they may find that it's really difficult to, to make decisions. Um, you know, they, their self-esteem has been crushed or their sense of self-confidence. And so it, it takes time to build that back up. Um, and so that's why I think it's really important that it, 
that they find therapists who are familiar with post-cult after effects because it's it's not the kind of traditional therapy of oh let's go back to when you were three years old and what happened you know with your doggy that died <laughs> they, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make light of therapy I think that was exactly what we do <laughs> but um, you know it's really important first and foremost to kind of debrief uh, the cult experience to uh, to undo uh, the ways of thinking that that were ingrained in in you while you were in the cult, and so that means unpacking all of that. Um, and and I think uh, you know, like there are different exercises and, and sort of assignments that I sometimes give people when when I do consulting to to help them sort of see the enormity of the system that they were part of and, and the pressures that were on them and why they did the things they did and, and be able to kind of undo all that. Um, and, and that takes time. Um, I, I, most people, I think if they, if they read the books, like, like my book, take back your life, or they get into a, a support group with other former cult members, which is really helpful because you see, you're not the only one. Um, and if they get in, get good therapy, I think most people, you know, come out fine and, and can carry on and have a good life. There, there are always going to be triggers. Um, it's like any other deep relationship that, you know, that you've had, you, you know, if you get divorced, you don't automatically forget that partner and all the things that happen. So, you know, I mean, I've been out of my cult for what 35 years or more now and I still have triggers you know I'll see someone who looks like my cult leader and I'll go boing you know or, mm-hmm. or might hear a song or smell a certain scent and 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 the important thing is to know what those triggers are and not let them overcome you you know mm-hmm. be able to say oh yeah that's from them goodbye you know and just mm-hmm. put Side. One of the difficulties that I think that I've had is political leanings, you know, especially at this time of, you know, pretty polarized political um, environment. Somebody asked you about uh, in another interview as to, you know, people who are like Trump supporters, you know, I try, and again, I try not to just be very political in general, just because trying mm-hmm. not to. Right. But it's been like, you know, people are like other people are kind of in the Trump in the Trump cult, basically, because they're more willing to be, let's say, anti-vaxxers or not accept the results of the election or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm interested in seeing where do you draw that line between, um, you know, just being in the, in the further extremes of a political ideology or religious uh, ideologies or people who are very, very religious in a, in a particular, you know, mainstream sect like mm-hmm. Catholicism, mm-hmm. Evangelism, and those who actually cross the line into actually being a cult, if you will. Yeah, I think that um, you know there can be there can be uh, forms of extremism or examples of extremism that uh, that may be distasteful to us or to someone else, um, but but is not exactly. Uh, cultic or or fits all the definitions of of being a cult um for me i think what's important is especially with political uh political organizations um is this whole idea of the end justifies the means i think mm. when you have an end justifies the means philosophy then anything goes and anything can be asked of you um and so and we have seen that in 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 a number of cult groups and you know it's okay to lie because you're doing this for the greater good it's okay to rob that store because it's you know it's mm. 
us achieve our goals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it can go from little things to to, to far more major things. Um, so I think when it gets to that point, then when when they're telling you the ends justify the means, you know, then you've kind of given away your ability to act act ethically and rationally. Um, mm. And you're much more um, you're going to be much more capable of causing harm to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I saw the other day some governor or some somebody uh, said he was willing to die. For, for, oh right, I think it was the Arizona GOP. He was ready to die to get get these election results overturned, and then he asked the crowd, "You know, are you ready to die?" I mean, that's crossing the line as far as I'm concerned. Got you it. know, mm-hmm. uh, because you know that leads, like I said, that leads to very dangerous territory. So, uh, you know, people can be very. Um, devoted and dedicated, you know, can be devout Catholics or or devout Christians um, without necessarily being in a in a cultic church or a cultic environment. Um, mm-hmm. you know, strong belief doesn't necessarily mean that you've given up yourself and that you've given up mm-hmm. your autonomy. So, uh, yeah, it's important, I think, to to take a careful look before we we really judge. It's so interesting. Yeah, I just I, I keep thinking about, you know, the biographies of people who are, you know, saints or anything, people who do really kind of just give up of themselves in order for, right. for the religious order. Right. However, they're not necessarily being forced. So I mean, you know, I would like to, I mean, like, at least I know that. So that you mentioned the hallmarks that are hallmarks of cults or cults. Can you talk a little bit about more of those? You know, what would be the kind of the top two, three or five yeah. hallmarks of cults that you would say these sort of things to look out for? Yeah, well, you know, certainly for me, there, there, there has to be, and there usually is some kind of authoritarian leader um, who is often described as charismatic, and you know, charisma is in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, we may not understand right. people are falling at someone's feet, but you know, to them, you know, that person yeah. has a charismatic hold on them. So, mm-hmm. generally, there's the authoritarian leader who. Uh, you know, is above reproach. Um, certainly there will be some uh, some system of indoctrination, uh, which mm-hmm. is essentially to re-socialize you, uh, to a- adopt the belief system and, and, you know, give all your devotion to the leader. Um, now, many, many organizations ha- have indoctrination systems. I mean, mm-hmm. you mentioned the military as one. Um, but that doesn't make it a cult in and of itself. I mean, in the military, you're, you know, you're in for a certain amount of time, you're getting paid, you have health benefits, right? your, your, your term is going to be up and you can leave. They're not telling you who to marry, you know? Uh, so right. you know, there, there is, a, there are some similarities, but, but it's certainly not the same. Uh, so with a cult, you have to have the leader, the indoctrination system, the requirement that you go through a kind of self-transformation to fit mm. the mold, to fit the mold of of what is the good, dedicated cult member supposed to be like. And so that's you know that's where the the conformity comes in. Mm. Uh, and then there will be you know what I call the the, the the systems of control and influence you know these are the ways in which uh, you are you are kept bound to the group and and in in most cult groups 
there's going to be some some type of exploitation, you know, whether that's sexual, financial, um, just using you, you know, free labor, you know, whatever it might be Mm -hmm. to serve cult's purposes. Got it. Katie? Thank you very much. I I was going to, I'm just going to ask one more question about if you had any resources recommended, I mean, your own work um, for potentially for family members or friends of people who are concerned about a loved one being a member of a cult. Yeah, I, you know, the most important thing is to, um, is to be very practical. You know, if you think someone's Mm. involved in something to uh, find out as best you can what it is and then do research, um, see what information you can find out. But there's, there's so much information today on the internet, which is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, so many people who've been part of groups have set up websites or, uh, you know, so you can find a lot on the internet. Um, I, you know, the important thing is to not scare the person away to try to keep open lines of communication, mm-hmm. um, to keep telling them in, in whatever way you can that, uh, while you may not agree with, with what they're doing, that you still, love them and respect them and that your your door is always open to them mm-hmm. uh, especially for family i think you know l- letting your your family member know that um your home would always be a safe haven because the the hardest thing anyone's ever going to do is leave a cult right and and to know that there's some place they can go yeah. where where they're not going to be criticized you know somebody's not going to say see i told you so you know uh-huh. <laughs> going to be able to decompress and feel safe um that that's so important so i think always you know always keeping that safe haven there for them and letting them know that in in whatever way makes sense um and and then in whatever way you can to to maybe try to plant some seeds of um that may reawaken uh their critical thinking abilities and so you know i always tell people you know, if you are able to communicate, especially if you're able to to send mail or email or whatever, to to kind of send reminders of good times that you've had together, mm. um, send photographs, send postcards, um, you know, mm. remind the person that there really was another life and that that life really wasn't that bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and to kind of maybe tug at their emotional heartstrings. Yeah. Because it's, you know, emotions are what, are so toyed with in cults. I mean, your emotions are absolutely manipulated. And mm. so if you can in any way reawaken that and remind them of these other times and, and don't expect people to respond immediately. I mean, it, it, mm. all of this has to, you know, we always say, that, you know, that there's always going to be doubts and questions and, and you can't ask them openly while you're in a cult, but you kind of, they get stored on this shelf in the back of your head. And then at some point, there'll be just one more little thing added to that shelf and the shelf will break. And mm. and then you realize that something's not right here. I think I probably got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you, know, if you can add little kernels to that shelf um, as a person on the outside. You know, that's a good thing. And also, I think another important thing is for people to take on different roles like you know, if somebody can play hard cop and somebody else plays, you know, soft cop so that mm-hmm. um, there's always somebody the person feels safe with and feels able to talk to. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So, you know, if you can bring in, you know, other friends or other family members who can who can take different roles and communicate with that person. That's so interesting because you, you, what you're alluding to is um, what a lot of the research in psychology talked about, you know, people changing people's minds about things that they believe deeply. So currently, you know, any uh, big topic is politics for sure. But I was just talking earlier to a friend about an anti-vaxxer friend that approached her and right. And they're like, oh, and they like, how do I get her to change your mind? I'm like, you know, I, I don't I think you, you just go slowly and you just ask questions, but really just. She's like, what video can I show her to change her mind? I'm like, I don't think it's going to work that way. Yes. Uh, and you, you have to take this kind of multi-pronged approach of like just getting them to question and asking them things, making them question and rather than you giving them answers exactly. and just leaving that door open for whenever they're ready. But it's it's definitely not one of those things. It's not like a debate that you win and the person goes, oh, of course, I changed my mind. But it's exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it takes time. And it's frustrating. I realize it's always frustrating for for those of us on the outside. But um, you have to try to understand the situation that that person is in. Thank you so much for all of this information. This is incredibly useful. Um, Leo, did you have any last questions that you wanted to ask? I, yeah, I could go on forever because I, I just keep I, keep I keep seeing so many parallels to like so to abusive relationships that line in which at what point do you cross from just normal church activities or political activities to next thing you know you're you know in the the Sibinese Liberation Army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well I think you know I think uh, today with so many of these uh, fundamentalist churches, I mean you know they're on every street corner. And uh, I, I think it's it's ripe for developing into a cult because so many of them have, you know, some guy who declares himself a pastor. He doesn't necessarily have any theological training. Uh, they're non-denominational, which means, you know, they don't belong to any kind of higher organization where there can be checks and balances. And And then I think these, you know, some of these pastors, they just get carried away with with when they see mm. the kind of power they have over their flock you know and so uh, i think those those churches are are often very very troubling environments um because they can so easily become cult like yeah. or, or straight out cults you know so i think you know people need to you know i think people forever are going to turn to religion as a as a way to try to make sense of the world but i, I think it's important to you know really a healthy religion should have you worshiping some kind of higher principle, you know, whether that's God or Allah or a tree or whatever. But once you're mm-hmm. worshiping the, the man or woman who's standing right in front of you, you know, then 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 that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Interesting. Do you mind maybe talking a little bit about the process of how you were able to kind of just what, what made you decide to like step away and how that process was for you? Well, it's kind of a complicated story because actually mm. with my group, unlike most groups, um, we basically kind of finally had our revolution, which was that we overthrew our leader. <laughs> so a lot of things had built up to a point where those of us in the inner circle were really burned out and the leader was was more and more removed from the rest of the group and was pretty much drunk all the time. And, mm. you know, what we were doing had nothing to to do with what we said our goals were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, what happened is we called together the whole organization and the leader happened to be out of the country. 
and we called everybody together and said, you know, this this is a cult and here's mm. what really goes on behind the scenes. And eventually we took a vote and we voted unanimously to expel her and to dissolve the organization. Mm. Yeah, so that's a that's an unusual ending for a cult. In my own experience, I actually became completely disillusioned after about five or six years in the group. But mm. I because of various things that happened. And one of them had to do with my mother's death, but I couldn't figure out how to leave. I, I was, I was psychologically trapped. I mean, I, you right. know, the door, the door was there and I could not figure out how to walk out the door. Yeah. I was scared. I was scared. I had no money. I knew they would come after me. I didn't know where I could go. I didn't have any friends outside anymore. Both my parents were dead and, and it just seemed hopeless. And, and I mm. used, I used to literally get in my car every day hmm. and wish that I would be killed in a car accident because it wow. was it was the only way I could see that I could get out. Yeah. So um, and I think a lot of people in cults experience that that kind of um, trauma. It's very traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a powerful um, imagery that you just said, you know, the door was there, but you just couldn't figure out how to walk out of it. Yeah. And that is basically the reality for many of people who are in cults, right? Is that they, you know, for people who is for whom it's difficult to understand how they function and the power of peer pressure and having been removed from your family, your social support that, yeah, you're, you know, it's like, well, what you could just leave. Yeah, it's easy to say and very much like an abusive relationship. And I work with domestic violence victims. It was the same thing. Like the door is there, but walking out is not easy at all. So that, I, I really appreciate that uh, imagery and that, that that's very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. If people want to find out more about your work, we'll definitely link to it in our show notes. Um, where else can they find you? What's the best place to learn more about your work? cultresearch.org that that's you know there's a lot of information there and um i think links to my books and then there's also a way through the website that people can email me if they want to you know message me directly so that that's probably the best thing okay. great there's so cultresearch.org you can have a, lots of uh, links to your books as well and uh to the groups that you are involved with Great. to help people out yeah it's fantastic Thanks for sharing your your story and your expertise today i'll post it on facebook and twitter and everywhere so oh brilliant lovely we appreciate that that's okay. awesome we're so we we can't we're, we you really are like you made our we were like oh my god i can't believe we have a british show <laughs> oh, <please. laughs> yes. yeah. Yes. Katie, yeah katie katie there are katie, no katie, there are no gurus. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's-